of trauma and eating disorder. Just can't get anyone's attention. Let me play my part. Check to hate. Like, is that real? Did that happen? Like, the structure of your brain actually changes. And do you still feel that every day? And then it got time for guitars. Eating disorder, like, I didn't want to die. Tendencies. But I didn't want to live. Help Girl. You gotta go in the hospital. You feel powerless because the body has a fear reaction. The opportunity to empower. No one can take away my power. I won't take myself out. Artists that are true like that, those are the ones that tend to like create change. I, I can I can do two soapbox statements myself. Um, one is um, um, often once somebody has an eating disorder diagnosis, people um, automatically stop trusting their ability to report on what's going on with their body. So this sounds a little counter what I was saying before about not really being able to do intuitive eating right away, but. Um, I do think I, I've seen um, a number of times where it, it nece- hasn't necessarily been cancer, but it's something else like um, celiac disease or um, uh, what's another example that I've seen? Um, <sighs> I'm going to not remember. I, I distinctly remember somebody with celiac. Um, but there is uh, there's this um, – idea that that you can't um, rely on the judge, judgment of somebody who has has struggled with this part of their body. And so people will ignore some symptoms that end up being something really serious. So I would say, um, first of all, anybody struggling with an eating disorder um, should always um, be uh, getting medically monitored in one way or another, um, especially if any surprising symptoms are coming up, because there are all sorts of um, things that can just happen as a result of an eating disorder physically. But um, but yes, we need to be better as providers in trusting when somebody says something's something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. That well, that hits home so closely because uh, um, we talk about the ACEs study in mm-hmm. the documentary. Yeah. Um, adverse childhood experiences yeah. study from I think the mid nineties. And I'll probably bring it up in a lot of these interviews because I really want the average person to know about it. Yeah. Like I'm not a doctor, a nurse, and, and whatever, but I know generally that people with diabetes check their insulin. Like there's just this basic public knowledge, mm-hmm. and I want that public knowledge to be out there around trauma. Yeah. Um, so what people don't always realize is that having extreme trauma, not maybe you didn't make the varsity team or maybe your parents divorced and it was a tough time, but extreme out of the ordinary trauma, especially repeatedly again and again while your brain and body are forming. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it cuts your life expectancy shorter for a lot of people, for the mm-hmm. average. Um, and it makes you more prone to seven of the 10 leading causes of death, mm-hmm. heart disease, COPD, different types of cancer, um, all these different things. So for people who have severe psychological disturbance, to have their opinion mean less, carry less weight, like that hurts so bad. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. They need you're to right. Be ex- they need, it needs to be understood. They're at a higher risk. 
Yes. And does that general practitioner that we were complaining about earlier, do they have that education? Right. I don't know if they do. And it's frustrating because this study is 20 years old. Right. So what do we do? Yeah. Um, let me also say my second soapbox point, which is, um, <laughs> uh, that is, which relates also, um, there is some evidence that women get, uh, just in general, um, get, uh, not taken as seriously, mm-hmm. um, when reporting their symptoms. Agreed. Um, and so, you know, with, um, the confluence of trauma and eating disorder, um, and women experience both at, at higher rates. Um, and well, women experience especially sexual trauma at a higher rate than the average, um, th- than, than men. I actually don't know the statistics on physical trauma. Um, it's hard to know if a guy would even report it, you know, right. like if a guy got, like I, we were talking about bullying earlier, if a guy got beat up a lot in, in, junior high would he go and say well i'm a trauma survivor would he right. say that's part of growing up it's i think perceived and processed differently right as well and maybe that needs to be addressed but yeah i mean um it's heartbreaking when you hear things like you know um kelly's story of like uh, of having a sense that something was off and and um having mental health history interfere with with mm-hmm. that ability to get the correct medical help because there's somatic pain too like i think people generally know that there's such thing as psychosomatic pain sure um and if you don't believe that something that's not physical can hurt then talk to an amputee mm-hmm. right it's 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 excruciating and so people who have been in chronic pain for years and years and there's a blend between the psychosomatic pain and maybe other just things that go on in life um and those having a physical toll, you get to the doctor one day and say something else is wrong, like something feels weird, can you can you just check everything? And they're probably in their head thinking, look, well, you never feel good. Yeah. You know, and you're non-compliant anyway, you never fucking eat. So right. why don't you get compliant and then we'll talk about your health. Like, it's just so easy to brush people off. Yeah. What do we do? Well, and and let me say that for a psychosomatic pain, it, it does exist, but you... Um, you should always rule out medical causes before you um, make that kind of diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. Also, um, same for an eating disorder, right? If somebody um, loses a bunch of weight, for instance, and says, "I'm not, I'm not trying to do this. I, I can't eat for one reason or another." Um, you want to rule out all medical causes before you make the assumption that they have an eating disorder. There's got to be a ton of diseases that take away your appetite, right? Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, so I, I think it's all about, it comes back to what we were talking about, about, um, having better education. I will say we also have a very overburdened medical system. So the average amount of time that any sort of medical professional gets to spend with a -hmm. given patient is very small. Um, and so often, um, people are, um, kind of, um, in a rush to get to the next person, right. To serve Mm -hmm. all the need that they have. Um, and so that's a systemic issue. Um, it's interesting. So, um, I have a son who's two and a half who has, um, uh, a lot of medical issues. And so, um, I interface with the medical system a lot with him and, I am always surprised at how much better pediatric providers are than the average um, adult provider um, uh, at just building rapport and so forth. And again, I don't, I don't want to, 
I don't want to come out like anti-medical provider. We're not ripping on doctors, but there's no. just stuff that needs to be criticized. Yeah, um, but I think uh, this is um, there is a way to spend not as you know it be be aware of the constraints of the medical system and still have um, good bedside manner um, mm-hmm. uh, trust of. Um, the patients in front of you, regardless of, you know, their um, history, regardless of their mental health um, Mm -hmm. struggles. Um, And I I think we just have to do a better job of preparing preparing people who are medical professionals to go out and and interact with people who are struggling in terms of uh, mental health disorders, because uh, it's just uh, there's just not that much training around that. There's not training, and I wonder if there's again being medical device by day, and mm-hmm. then you know um, having this be kind of like my life's work now, and and trying to carry the lessons lessons I learned from Cal forward. Yeah. It's a you can get whiplash when you've got like I said the cardiac ablation catheter in one hand. And her eating disorder workbook from IDP in the other hand. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of these people that if you put them in the same room, there'd be some sparks. Mm-hmm. The, the cardiologist and the eating disorder therapist, you know, there'd be some very serious disagreements. Yeah. Um, and I think to me, it's, the answer is always not to avoid each other, but to have that open conversation. Yeah. Because in the end, the tombstone doesn't lie. And you can die of heart disease and you can die of diabetes or you can die of an eating disorder or you can die of some kind of cancer that no one noticed for ages and ages because she never fucking feels good anyway. So yeah. uh, what does it matter if I've got an email of hers from 2010 that says, I think there's something seriously wrong with my health. Mm. I think there's, I'm, I'm really sure there's something wrong. It's not the normal problems. And like, I just can't get anyone's attention. Mm. Like, I don't like to be the one that's like, oh, if this, if that, she'd still be here. Um, But at the same time, can we improve things? Right. You know, so can we have these difficult conversations and bring the cardiologist and the eating disorder clinician into one room and say, listen, this person needs a functioning human mind and a functioning human body. Mm -hmm. Can we come together? Right. I I think, I mean, that would be the goal, right? Um. And that that actually kind of brings me back to your question before about the sort of healthy at every size. and the tobacco metaphor. Yes, the tobacco metaphor. Yep. Um, so, so, you know, um, first of all, um, I, you know, gosh, you know, I don't, I don't want to um, sound critical of any side of this because I think all sides have really good points and... Um, and I think part of the problem is we're we are getting too polarized um, of people who are trying to help the person with heart disease who you know owing to um, excess weight, right? Mm-hmm. And the and pe- their doctor feels well, they're bringing it on themselves, and mm-hmm. maybe that's why that two year old gets so much better attention. Right. Then the 46-year-old, right. um, when the doctor's like, well, you know, we've been asking you for 20 years to lose some weight, and now here you are. Right. It's exactly. so easy to be callous, you know? Yes, yes. Um, and I think it is, especially if you've been a provider for a long time, you see all sorts of stuff. And the biggest problem with any medical or psychological issue is um, non-compliance, right? You you give a recommendation and somebody doesn't follow through, not because they're a bad person or they lack willpower or they're trying to be oppositional, um, but because that's our human makeup. And, <laughs> and it's our culture. Like people don't talk as much about um, 
you know, we all think of ourselves as individuals. We woke mm-hmm. up this morning, the sun came up, and we decided what kind of life we're going to live. Right. But so much of it is predetermined. Like, unless you're really happy to have friction and go against the grain, yeah. your environment is dictating to you certain things. Yeah. You know, I kind of say, and I'll, I might get in trouble for this in the eating disorder community, but I feel like Americans drive to fake food, and there are parts of the world where people walk to real food. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a world of difference as far as how that plays out on the human body. Are those people... Uh, less lazy? Are they smarter? Are they having more willpower? Are they better? No, it's their environment. They were born into a different way of life. Yes. So again, can we address certain things, make the cardiologist happy without humiliating and shaming and bullying people? Yes. You know what I'm seeing is there are some really extreme views on this because um, for so long, um, the, the there has been... Uh, weight stigma and fat shaming and as just a general part of our, our culture and accepted part of our culture. And so and now the pendulum's swinging um, in the other direction, which is great. But I think sometimes when you have um, a disenfranchised group, um, there is this moment of, of getting very extreme in the other direction, the right? overcorrection, the classic overcorrection. Yes. And it'll swing back kind of to in that middle mi- where we can talk about Listen, we have the data that stigmatizing and humiliating people doesn't improve their health. That's right. So let's rule that out as a possible, um, you know, form of treatment. Well, you know, shame serves a purpose in society. Yeah. Okay, but it's not getting the job done. So yeah. I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. You know what I think is happening right now? I think it's um, uh, very much a a, a cultural um, process of change going on. So. Um, but you know, to to kind of bring it back to this this um, weight stigma issue. So what happened that shifted the tide is that um, there was a, a period of time where um, where the LGBT community got very angry with the psychological community and had um, protests and showed up at conferences um, screaming and saying, you know, this is you cannot classify you know, our experience, who we are as, um, as a disorder, right? Um, and we're very, very vocal. And um, over time, that got the message through to people that this was the wrong way to look at things. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that period of time, there was, uh, after the message had got, gotten through and, and the psychological community had shifted their perspective, then there came a time where we could um, sit and talk and have conversations about how to best serve this community, right? And and things have shifted so so much. Although there's always room for improvement, especially um, outside. I mean, outside the U.S. and parts of the U.S. But I mean, yes. there's still for for those of us in this generation who feel like you know we've really come most of the way, like there's still a purge going on in Chechnya and there's people running for their lives and it just needs to keep spreading. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, and I see a similar process going on now with the, the, um, weight stigma, um, and healthy at every size community where, um, people are being, having, um, very strong voices and strong stances. And sometimes I know I can, I can find that alienating because I, as a researcher, because I can feel like we're doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're trying to help as many people as we can, um, and I think that level of um, of strength in message is necessary to get people to pay attention and to shift over 
towards the middle, you know, and then and then I think there will come a period of time where there can be more uh, dialogue. Yeah. So speaking of dialogue, well, back to the gay thing for just yeah. a second. Yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing about like you mentioned the social pressure, and that was one of the big catalysts. Yeah. Um, you know, we shouldn't forget that this is supposed to be a science. Right. Psychology is supposed to be a science. So if you say this is a disease of the mind, a psychological disturbance, show me the data. Show right. me that the main problems, if you ask a person who's gay in the 1970s, are not external but internal, mm-hmm. right? You'll say, well, I'm scared. I'm scared I'll lose my job. Mm-hmm. If I mention this to someone, I'm scared of this, I'm scared. And they'll, ne- they'll name external aspect after external aspect. Yeah. And it's not the relationship itself that's bothering anyone. That's actually the... The sanctuary, right? That's the haven. That's the escape. That's the joy. Being right. in love with someone and having a family. Right. Um, so to me, like, if someone had taken a, an objective look at the data, they would have come to it just as a scientist. And I know that social pressure is important, but I feel like let's not forget that psychology is, is a science and let's always follow the data and put our own biases aside. Yeah. So um, this is a really good point. Um, and and I actually I think an important thing for people just to realize in general is um, science does it as a discipline does its best job at being objective, but it is not. You know, <laughs> sure. it's it's as well as we can do. Um, but because we're all humans who are doing the the research, um, inherently some of our biases come in. Um, Even and deciding what to research and what doesn't matter, right? Exactly. Can you really? How much can you avoid confirmation bias? Um, you can do your best. I mean, I think I I can speak to my own process as a researcher. Um, you want um, you want everybody tries to make sense of their world. Right. And so all of us have these ideas about how the world's organized and what leads to what outcomes and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it is very hard to sit down and do research and, and rid yourself of those ways you've made sense of the world, especially when you're researching a social or emotional process. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, um, there are all sorts of things that can happen um, in the process that if you're um, if you're doing your best, you try to overcome, but it's it's often one of those things that you you have blind spots and you just don't even see that you are being biased. So um, in the way, you know, if you ha- um, do a study and you have uh, data that say something that's different than what you expected. There are different ways you can deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, one is you say, oh, maybe things are different than the way I think they are. Um, it's harder to do than it sounds, right? Right. Can you talk about the neural pathways and how we get in our ruts and everything? Like, Can you talk about the physical brain for a minute? I can do my best. <laughs> it's not your specialty? Um, in eating disorders, it is. Go for it. Um, not necessarily as a, you know, a broad... Um, right. We all know people, we call them stuck in their ways, but I don't think people visualize how physically true that is. Yes. So, so. You'll impress us anyway, no matter what you say. <laughs> so I'm just going to give you free reign. Okay. Uh, with the caveat <laughs> that I'm not a neuroscience specialist, but. Um, but you can find me one, right? 
Sure, sure. Awesome. I, I know lots of neuroscientists. Um, I'm, I'm dying to, yeah. Oh, really? I could, I could talk I could, about this for hours. Yes. Um, so, so what I can say from, from my own knowledge is um, our experiences um, and our patterns have a very strong impact on our brain, right? So um, trauma is one that has been shown to uh, totally uh, shift the way our brains function. Um and just even everyday experiences can can change our brain. We tend to um, uh, our brains um, like to operate along well worn pathways, right? So if you always do something the same way, it becomes part of this habitual system that's that's uh, run by certain parts of our brain that control motor function, especially. Um, and decision making. And so when you go down a certain um, well-worn pathway, right, where you drive the same way to work every day for 20 years, your brain does not even have to operate on um, conscious, um, spe- uh, specifically thought out um, decision making. You As just, in like the, is that the prefrontal cortex? Right. Um, there, there is a, a there are parts of the prefrontal cortex that are involved in in this process, but it's um, there are some parts of our brain that are involved in active decision making. Those that um, have effortful control in the prefrontal cortex, and some that um, process um, things like acutely experiencing a reward or acutely experiencing something that's um, aversive. When we get into these well worn paths, we're we're using parts of our brain that. Um, really have to do with um, just generating responses rather than thinking them out. And so, so is it like if it was a computer processor, if it was a CPU, we would check on it and say, oh, it's only using like 14%. But that's when right. we have to process and think about something out of the ordinary, it might be using like, I'm making this up, but say yeah. it's using like double that or something. Yeah, that's right. And so what's we, all this? None of us are using our fucking brains to begin with. <laughs> When are we going to figure that one out? You know what? Is, I, is it 10%? I, um, something like that. But I actually <laughs> think... horrible. You know what? Uh, I also think it's it's probably good, right? We don't want to be using all of our brain all the time. We need some... Because it could fry and we'd have to go down to micro center. <laughs> right, and like, exactly. Exactly. My fan malfunctioned. Yes. <laughs> I need a so, CPU. Is it going to be $500? Um, but, um, but... I still feel like we're being ripped off. Probably. Get the music behind the mission. Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movement. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is proud.